Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Point number one is the Hager option. I just want to suggest right now that most of us have at one time or another tried to exercise the Hager option. We'll find out why that's not such a hot idea. Chapter 16 moves rapidly into the account of the birth of Ishmael. It's quite an intriguing story, especially when we view it through the lens of our 21st century American eyes. We look somewhat puzzled and quizzically at this entire account. So as the story begins... Fine Abram and Sarai have dwelt in the land of Canaan now for 10 years. And the promise of Abraham being a fountainhead of a great nation has never been far from their thoughts, but they don't see anything happening yet. And finally, they come to the point where they begin to think, maybe we're the ones that need to be doing more because God has given us his promise, but here we are, we're in the land, and he's promised to make uh, a great nation come forward from Abram, and nothing is happening. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe God's expecting us to be more proactive in this. I don't think they necessarily doubted the promise as much as they probably had some pretty serious questions about when and how. And because so much time had passed now, and obviously they're both growing older, uh, Sarah finally gets to the point where she feels like if the promise of children is ever going to happen, she and Abram are going to be responsible for coming up with a plan because God has not revealed any plan and nothing has happened. They, they feel personally responsible for maybe the failure at this point. And thinking, well, maybe we... Maybe we're mistaken on waiting on God. Maybe God's waiting on us. Now, you've been in these, you've been in these quizzical places in your life before. Uh, something's at a standstill, and you don't know if it's God not moving or you not moving. When we get to those places, then sometimes we make the choice, well, maybe we're the ones that need to make the move. So if you don't know what else to do, you just make something up. And so Sarai goes to her husband, Abram, and she says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Now, just at that point, you have to understand why she states it like that because it was quite common in that culture, whether they were followers of the only true God or whether they were idolaters, it was just very common in that ancient Near East culture to believe that Childbirth was a blessing of God, and barrenness was a curse from God. Uh, if you couldn't have children, God had cursed them for something they had did or something that somebody in their family had done. She put this in this uh, terminology when she said, God's prevented me 
from having children. He doesn't want me to have children. Something's wrong in my life. She says, therefore, to Abram, I've prayed about this, and I think you ought to sleep with my slave Hagar and have a baby by her. And that way, we can build the family God has promised us. Now, first, consider this. Uh, Sarai must have really, truly, wholeheartedly bought into Abram's belief and faith that God wants me to have children. She must have believed that. I have no evidence in Scripture that God ever appeared to Sarai or Sarah and said, I'm going to convince you of the promise. God appeared to Abram, and Abram told Sarai, and Sarai must have truly, truly, deeply believed it because now she's bought into the plan. She says, well, let's, let's make this happen then. She came to the conclusion, I cannot give you children. God has permitted me. Take my handmaid. Have children with her. We will fulfill the promise. If she hadn't believed Abram, she wouldn't have offered this kind of a plan. Believe me. Second, we're a little bit uncomfortable with this arrangement because this is not culturally and socially acceptable for us. We 21st century Americans, even though the morals are collapsing around us, we still have a remember enough about decency and orderly things that we look at this and we say, nah, that's not quite the way that we're supposed to do things in our culture. You know, some couples may have challenges in having children, and they seek alternate ways to do that. Some may adopt, and some may even have a surrogate. But uh, I'm not trying to get embarrassing here, but in, in our arrangement of, of having a surrogate mother, uh, we've never considered it acceptable for the wife to say, well, go sleep with her and have a baby. We've, we've got other ways that maintain our moral integrity of having a child without allowing that to be a part of it. So we read this, and we, we're repulsed a little bit. You want your husband to go sleep with another woman and have a child, and that's okay with you. So we have this ethical problem. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the, this in the context of this culture, that was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. And Abram and Sarai were a part of the ancient Near East. They, they weren't these model Christians that we might impose on them from our perspective. They were just a part of that culture. And it was not only a part of that culture, an acceptable part of the culture, in, in some instances... In some segments of that culture, it was absolutely required in that culture. If you can't have kids, you, the father had better find a woman and have a child because you need to have a son to carry on the name. So it was, it was not only permissible, it was expected to be able to have children and carry on the family name. Everybody was all right with that back then. It was not an ethical conflict. And then furthermore, keeping in mind that Sarah thinks she's under punishment from God. She has now closed the chapter on that and said, well, God just simply doesn't want me to have children. That She has created this scenario in her own mind, so there's no use in waiting on me. It was the only logical thing that she could think of. Abram, you're going to have to have a child by another woman. 
Abram sleeps with Hagar, and as expected, as they had planned, uh, Hagar becomes pregnant, and then, lo and behold, <laughs> this problem arises. As Hagar is carrying Abram's child, Sarah starts having a problem with this. Jealousy. And Hagar's pregnancy, keeping in mind what I've already informed you about, represents a daily reminder to Sarai that Hagar's gods blessed her, but Sarai's God did not bless her because they were all, as I said, in that culture attributing fertility or barrenness to the uh, attitude and the cause from the gods. So here's Hagar, the Egyptian, the, uh, the heathen, that her heathen gods, her idol, idolatrous gods, they blessed her with a child. But Abram's trying to follow this real, true, living, one and only God, and that God is not blessing Sarai. So this is really eating at her day after day. It's getting on her nerves. And the false gods at this point seem to be outperforming Abram's God. It's just about enough to make somebody want to switch religions at that point. Well, if those gods can do this for me and my God doesn't, why not? But you have to be solid in your faith. And, and here's the part that is, as far as I'm concerned, the real kicker because Sarai gets herself so emotionally worked up over Hagar obviously carrying this child that finally she hits that boiling point. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say she hits the boiling point? And she goes marching into Abram and she says this, this is all your fault. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she hates me. And Abram is just as got and speechless as you, my fellow man, would be in the same situation. You're blaming me? This was your plan. But no, notice... Abram has the wisdom not to say this. He just goes with it. And essentially what he tells Sarai, do anything you want. Men, if you don't get anything else from this sermon today, know when to go with it. He just backs off anything you want. Just do it. That's what she wanted. So she goes and, and devises this plot where she's going to make Hagar's life miserable every day. And she does that daily until Hagar gets to the point where she cannot stand it and she packs and leaves because Sarai knew she had the ability to do that. Then all she has to say is, well, she didn't want to hang around here. It's not my fault. And I just want you to notice that people take that indirect approach often in life. Rather than dealing straight on with people, 
they just make life miserable for people until it kind of resolves itself that way. Not the way to handle things, but I just want you to notice this has been going on for a long, long time. And Sarai did it, and people still do it today, and it's not really easy always to have this personal face-to-face confrontation with somebody. I mean, imagine how difficult it would be for Sarai to sit down with Hagar and say, now, this is not working. I just want you to leave. You know, she doesn't really have any ground for doing that. So rather than do that, she just said, I'll just make her life miserable till she wants to leave. So she forces her out. We have this classic evidence here. When we take matters into our own hands, instead of leaving them in God's hands, how many can agree we mess things up? Get in God's way and you mess things up substitute your own plans for God's plans and you mess things up. We do it all the time. Now to conclude this chapter in this section, there's this messenger as Hagar is chased off that goes and finds Hagar in the wilderness by a well, pregnant and alone, trying to make her way back to Egypt by herself. Pathetic sight and situation and this messenger from the Lord, after she traveled about a week through this wild country, appears to her and tells her, you really need to go back to Sarai and just submit to her. Hagar gets a visitation from God, not her idolatrous God. She gets a visitation from God. And God says, just, just go back and put up with it. You, this is not right. You can't, you can't leave right now. First of all, as he meets her, the first thing he tells her is, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Ishmael. And the name Ishmael means God hears. The important message we get from this is that how much God cares for the outcast Hagar was not in the picture of the promise. Hagar was not in a relationship with the one true God. Hagar was an idolater. Hagar was uh, a confusion in the plot. But God cared about her. It's evidence that God didn't just care about Abram and Sarai and the rest of this people, these people that have suffering and sorrow. It's not as though he says, I don't care. I don't know you. I don't love you. No, he, they, they are creations of God too. And he sends a messenger to find Hagar without a personal relationship with him and, and to comfort her and to guide her and to, and to say, you're going to have a child and that child is going to be the source of a, a great nation yourself. God's got blessings on this woman though she's kind of outside of that immediate intimate circle. God cares. The second thing the angel tells her about her son, and this was the bad news, said, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be Ishmael. You're going to have many descendants, but your son's going to be like a wild donkey. Now, how many of you would have appreciated knowing that? (laughs) Yeah, you had all your high hopes. You're expecting, oh, this is going to be a wonderful son, and, a, and, a, and the messenger from God comes down and says, that's going to be one wild donkey you're going to have there. 
He's always going to be in conflict with everybody around him. He's not going to get along with his brothers. He and his descendants are going to be the kind of people who just don't blend into society, societal outcasts. And there's going to be constant conflict. Now, it, it's interesting that if, if you uh, just, you might want to write this down or, or take mental note of it, Genesis 25, 18 puts us down the road of, uh, a few years, and we read about Ishmael's descendants in this passage. It says, Ishmael's descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of, of Egypt as you would go toward Asher. And they lived in hostility towards all the tribes related to them. There's Ishmael. There's his descendants, true to the prophecy. They're going to be hard to get along with. Uh, a whole slew of people can't get along with anybody else. And then Hagar, <clears throat> at, at the moment of, of this revelation, you're going to have a child. He's going to be rather wild and unruly. But God has shown compassion. You've got to go back. You can't continue on. I want you to go back. Be a part of that. Stay there. And, you, I mean, after all, this is, this is a... Abram's son, and you need to go back and let him be responsible for raising this child. So Hagar gives God a name at this point. She doesn't know his name he has not been revealed as being Jehovah. The, the names of God early uh, on in this time have always been El something. Uh, so she doesn't know him by any name. It's just it's just this this being this deity, and so. In her first encounter with the God of Abraham, she says, I'm going to call you the God who sees me. And the well she was camping by from that time on became known as the well of the living one who sees me. Now, that's a powerful testimony from a heathen. She never knew any God who she was ever convinced was looking out for her personal interests. This is the only deity she'd ever encountered that cared about her. And this is the name. Kind of a crude name. She may have had names for other idols, but what God cares about you, his name is the God who sees me. That was his main attribute in Hagar's thinking. She thought her gods, by comparison, were distant unfeeling, uncaring, but this God's different. That's the God that we're serving, and what an impact he had on Hagar, the God who sees me. You may not know much about God, but you can know this for sure. He's the God who sees you. He's the God that knows your name. He's the God that knows your pain because you're sitting here today hiding your pain and I don't know your pain. Not unless you went limping around like I do. Some of you have emotional scars and pain and things you're struggling with today and you put on the face when you come. You don't want anybody to know what you're struggling with. God knows your pain. He's the God that sees you. He hears you when you cry. When nobody else can see you, 
He's the God that sees you. When nobody else knows you're hurting, he's the God that knows you're hurting. When nobody hears else hears the pain that's coming out of your heart, God hears your heart's cry. When everybody else is clueless about the pain you carried in here today and you will carry out of here, I want to let you know he is the God that cares and loves and understands. And Hagar learned this most important point about God. He is a personal God. And he saw you when you collapsed under the pressure of it all and went to your closet where nobody could hear you and nobody could witness you. God was there. He saw you. And he hears you when you cried out in your loneliness. So Hagar returns to camp. Not at all welcomed back by Sarai. She thought she was rid of this problem. She's not the happy camper here. Abram's glad to have Abram's glad to have Hagar back and potentially his his son. Sarai has deep concerns about this. Ishmael is born. At the time Ishmael was born, Abraham is now 86 years old. And Sarai's plan accomplished absolutely nothing productive for God's promise to them. As a matter of fact, Sarah's plan did nothing but create complications. Now, I, I told you in a previous sermon, I think it was just the one last Sunday, that you know don't rush the promise as Abraham could have taken the promised land early but he knew enough not to rush the promise now here's another example of trying to rush the promise here's an example of messing things up because you get out ahead of God here's a, an example of creating these complications that you didn't have to put up with except you caused them and Abram and Sir I thought they were helping and they didn't do anything but hinder now it doesn't keep God the hindrances don't keep God from executing his plan. They keep you from enjoying what you otherwise could have enjoyed because you created complications for your life. Understand the scenario that's been created here. A Abram and Sarai plotted their own way to make God's promise come to pass. They both agreed that Abram would bear a son by Sarai's handmaid. Hagar has the boy, and there is now friction between Sarai and Hagar. Oh, not only when she's expecting, but after the child is born, and you know the story, there's still a lot of friction going on. Sarai was not happy for years, and Abram had to live with that because it was his fault. For 13 years, get this, for 13 years, Abram raised Ishmael believing he was the channel of fulfilling the promise. He doesn't have any clue at this point. Ishmael's not the way it's going to go. He thinks this is going to be the fulfillment of the promise. So this is his son. This is the promised son. This is the one through whom all this is going to flow. He, 13 years of pampering this boy. This is the fulfillment. He is clueless at this point. They are living an illusion 
of their own making for 13 long years. So we try to analyze this. How can we learn something that keeps us from making the same mistakes Abram made? That's what I want to learn. Let him make the mistake. Let me learn from it. Let him bear the pain of all these bad decisions. Let me escape the pain. So that's what I want to do. How can I learn from what Abram did? I don't want to make his mistake. After all, Abram waited 10 years, and it seemed like the right thing to do. So how can I learn anything from this? Sarah was barren. It, she was convinced she wasn't going to have children. How can I learn anything from this? Everything they did seemed reasonable, and it seems like I'm being set up to fall into the same kind of a problem because they didn't really act irrationally. And I'm, I'm desperate. I've got to learn something from this so I don't do the wrong thing. But where did they go wrong? So the plan he and Sarah, Sarah hatched must have seemed reasonable, must have seemed logical, must have seen God sent. And they were, felt like they were the ones dropping the ball. So they're, they're trying to make something happen. God hasn't spoken to them. He hadn't told them anything different. In all sincerity, in all honesty, they're trying to do the right thing. How can I learn from that? I try to do the right thing all the time. And it still goes wrong. I just want to know what's the key here? What's the, how, how do I sincerely try to do the right thing without doing the wrong thing? And here's the fact. There is nothing you can learn from this <laughs> to keep from making the same mistakes. But what you can learn is that whatever mistakes you make are not big enough to stop God's plans. Whatever mistakes you make are the opportunity for God to train us. We get a lot of training in our life for the mistakes we make. We see the mistakes and go, oh no, and God goes, opportunity now. You have created a learning experience. Let's go with this now. So see, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life that me being so difficult, so hard on myself, I want to go back and I want to fix those and say, I just wish I could live life without making mistakes. But look at all the things I never would have learned. So the things we go through, even if they are our mistakes, our errors in judgment, are the times of growing and training and learning. That's the only way we're going to get that. You don't learn it out of books. You don't learn it by reading of somebody else's account. You learn it by going through it yourself, and that's what makes you into the person God wants you to be. That's the reason God gives us the latitude to make mistakes. That's the way he teaches us. He trains us by letting us walk through difficulties in life. He trains us by letting us make difficult decision that sometimes we make mistakes doing it and we look back and uh, I know that my wife and I we we talk every once in a while <laughs> about our life and our ministry and we sometimes chastise ourselves if we just hadn't done that 
And how did we do that? We, we, we talked. We thought we were doing the right thing. How could it go so wrong? How could God let us do that? And it turned out so wrong. And sometimes we really just, just punish ourselves with those kind of thinking. But now I've got a fresh perspective on this. It's not so bad when we really thought we were trying to do the right thing that we just didn't have the foresight as human beings to see that we were jumping ahead of God. So I feel a little better now that God said, I'll let you bump your nose once in a while. I'll let you fall down once in a while. I'll let you make a mistake once in a while. You'd better learn something in the aftermath. And it's all a process of learning how to follow God. I'm 65 years old, almost. I can tell you of certainty. I've discovered in my life I'm, I'm nowhere close to getting that point in life where I thought I could get to, where you finally don't make any mistakes anymore. Now, there is a point where you don't make any mistakes anymore. You're in the casket. <laughs> you can't do anything wrong at that point. But until that time, you're still going to make mistakes. And you're probably more upset about it than God is. Now, if you keep making the same mistake and over and over, we're going to have a talk about that. And then... We go to the 17th chapter, and God reveals to Abram that he wants to develop this sign for the promise. And he tells Abram, uh, I want you to circumcise yourself. I want you to circumcise all the male members of your community, and this will be a sign in the flesh, a physical sign in the flesh of being a part of the promise. Now, understand this. This is a very uh, fine point. Circumcision was not to guarantee the promise. It was to qualify you to be a part of the community for whom the promise would be fulfilled. So, God said to Abram, if they don't want to be circumcised, they can't be part of the community. If they can't be part of the community, they're not part of the promise. It wasn't a condition of the promise. It was a condition of participating in the promise. We probably look at this circumcision as being a very odd thing to do, to make a pact with God. And God tells Abram, I want you to circumcise all the male and males and 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 you know we, almost in our modern day understanding we're going say what you want me to do what and you think the rest of these people are going to believe me and I'm coming at them with that sharp stone you think they're going to buy it I mean let's 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 be practical about this this is really awkward Abram's circumcision was not, just to be technically accurate, the radical circumcision that is commonly practiced today. It was a very modified, partial circumcision that had no particular physical benefit whatsoever. There was no, and I know I've I've read uh, uh, books on. Uh, people trying to go back on Old Testament laws and say there's practical reasons why God did this. Well, sometimes there were. 
And sometimes there was no physical practical reason other than this is just what God wanted. And uh, I think as uh, Dr. E.S. McMillan wrote a book many years ago called None of These Diseases, it was a fascinating book as it went through a lot of the things done in the Old Testament in the Jewish community, and he gave medical reasons why uh, this was benefit to do it this way. Some of the hygiene practices that the Jews had that had been instituted by God through the law, uh, it helped spare the Jews from many of the plagues that have taken over the world in, in centuries past. And so there were some benefits to it. But this one, circumcision, had no benefit other than it's just a command God gave them. Now, if there's a parallel in Christianity, it would be water baptism. Jews became very adamant on the issue of circumcision. There was a controversy in the, in the young church, the explosion of Christianity, as Judaizers were running around to new Gentile converts, and they were saying, glad to have you on board. Now, the very first thing is we need to circumcise you. I mean, it, it was just so deeply ingrained in their religion they felt like they couldn't even properly serve God unless they went through the rite of circumcision. And, of course, it took the church council, early church council, to get themselves together and, and say, we're not going to do this anymore. This is not really what it's all about. That was for a covenant for Abram. As a matter of fact, when you get down to Moses, Moses had completely uh, abandoned it. Remember that? And it was his wife that said, you know what your problem is? You're not circumcised, and you didn't have your son circumcised. And they had gotten away from it. So it was reinstituted again under Moses, even though they had, it had uh, faded away uh, uh, under Abram's circumcision. And then after that, the Jews got really serious about this. And so they went around trying to circumcise all the new Christians whenever Paul was evangelizing, and, and, and uh, Paul said, let's get this settled right now. How, how much of this old law are we really going to carry on? And the church said, let's don't do this anymore. But we do have a parallel because uh, metaphorically, we speak in the New Testament of having a circumcision of the heart. So it goes back to the act of the Old Testament where there is what they say a cutting away of the flesh that is a mark of uh, being joined into the, to the community of God. But it, in, it's, it's metaphorized in the New Testament into where there's a heart circumcision. In other words, there's a cutting away of the flesh. In other words, it is denying things that would otherwise be temptations to you. So it's not a physical thing we do anymore. It is truly cutting away things spiritually in the heart that shows that we are devoting ourselves to God. But if there's, a, if there's a practice that parallels Old Testament circumcision, it would be baptism because baptism is one of those things that helps you to join into the community. Baptism, get me straight, uh, get, get this straight. Now listen to me, and if you think your neighbor's not listening, give him an elbow. Water baptism doesn't save you. And I know I've had, throughout my years as a pastor, I've had some people come and tell me, out of desperation, I'm, I'm sick, I'm dying, I, I, I want to get baptized. Why do you want to get baptized? I want to go to heaven. So now I have to have a theology class with them. Yeah, I can dunk you, but that's not going to get you to heaven. Let's deal with the real problem right now. And I lead them in understanding what salvation is all about. Now if you want to get baptized after understanding this, we'll make arrangements, but I'm not going to be a part of just dunking you in water, making you think that because you went through this, now you're okay because you got wet. 
baptism doesn't save you. There's no practical benefit to baptism, such as there's nothing in, uh, hygienically that is beneficial for us. It's just a symbolic thing that we do that joins us to the community and gives us an outward profession of our faith, connecting us uh, as an outward profession with Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, he rose again, and likewise, us through the baptism, we go through this symbolic thing of being symbolically uh, buried and resurrected, therefore identifying with Jesus Christ through public testimony. That's all it is. For some people, baptism is an emotional barrier for them to go through. They just have these fears about water baptism. First of all, they, they just, they're shy. They don't want to be in front of people. So they really fret whenever the prospect of baptism, water baptism is discussed with them. They worry sometimes that the pastor's going to lose his grip or get lost in a long sermon while they're underwater and forget. I know it sounds silly, but they worry about these things. How long am I going to be under? And so it makes it difficult for sometimes for people to consent to be water baptized because they have all these fears about what it means. And so I do everything I can to put people at ease that this is going to be fine. Well, what if, what if you can't handle me? I'm a, I'm a bigger person. You know, what if, what if you lose control? And, you know, is this going to be a debacle? Is this going to be an embarrassment? Hey, man, we can, uh, I'll baptize you forward. You want to go forward? We'll go forward. It doesn't make any difference. There's a lot of ways to get this done. But the thing about it is, it, it is a way for you to publicly declare you are joined in the community of believers. And it pleases God for you to have that outward public testimony. And you'd be surprised, maybe some of you, how many of your friends and family will come and watch you get baptized? And it might be one of those only opportunities they ever hear the gospel preached when they come on that day. Because that's a big deal in our culture when people get baptized. They love to come and watch other people go through that. The second thing God tells Abram, after he says we're going to have this circumcision to seal the deal, he says, now, the next thing I want to do is I want to change your names. Abram, I'm not going to call you Abram anymore, I'm going to call you Abraham. Abram means high father. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But it had some, it had some pagan roots. And God said, I want to refine that a little bit. You're not just a high father. And I want to call you father of multitudes. And to Sarai, he wants to change her name too. Her name means princess. And he says, from now on, I want to call you the mother of nations. So the, the, the father of multitudes and the mother of nations. And what it's doing is to give him a new identity. You forget who you were. There's nothing any more significant to the name changes other than just making a mark at this point that you're no longer who you used to be. And there's a new future for you. The old Abram is fading away. The old Sarai is being left behind. This new Abraham and the new Sarah, you've, you've got new identities. Not only in your name, but in your behavior, in relationship with me. Your whole life is changing now. Let's just give you a name that's appropriate to this new change. What's that mean to us when we have this revolutionary encounter with God? You're expected to have a new identity. 
Old things are passed away. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, the new has come into being. And that's one of the big concerns I have about modern day salvation. It's pretty easy to raise your hand, I want to be saved, and leave the building. But I'm looking for some fruit that says if anyone is really in Christ, you're not going to be who you used to be and act the way you used to act. You're going to be a new creation in Jesus Christ. I, I want people to have the kind of conversion experience so their friends and family says, what, is, what has happened to you? You used to be so fun. You're not the same person anymore. I want their testimony of the change that's in your life. What has happened to you? That's what the transformation is all about. There is a change. Would you bow your heads?